going to be talking about the science of laughter and I, I guess I want to start by just establishing that you can even study laughter scientifically. Uh, there is very, very little research into laughter. If you look at the, like, um, those databases of published papers, so if you go into something like Web of Science or PubMed and you type in the terms emotion, expression and fear, you'll get back well over 4,000 papers. There's a lot of neuroscience and psychology devoted to studying fear. If I just switch out fear for laughter, so I search for emotion, expression, laughter, I'll get back about 155 papers. It's extraordinary. The difference is enormous. Um, and I think that's probably for a couple of reasons. Um, I think the first question is one about how we've developed, for completely understandable reasons, uh, psychology in the West as a scientific discipline over the last um, you know, 100, 120 years or so, has kind of had a, very frequently, an applied aspect that sort of relates to disorders. So what people used to call abnormal psychology. So a lot of what we're trying to understand in terms of the, the sort of approach to the psyche in Western psychology is often very explicitly with an eye to also explaining when things go wrong. So from that perspective, if you're thinking about emotion, it, it makes sense to really understand things like, say, sadness, because if you want to stand understand depression, maybe we should know a lot more about sadness. And it makes sense to study fear, because if we want to understand anxiety, we should know a lot more about how fear operates. So I think that's, that's one of the reasons. What, what that's meant in practice is the vast majority of emotion studies within neuroscience and psychology tend to be on negative emotion, to the extent to which in some papers, when people talk about emotion processing, they, they largely mean negative emotions. Now, I think there's another slightly different reason why laughter is not studied very much in science, and I think that's because it sounds ridiculous. People think it sounds stupid and trivial. If I say to colleagues, oh yes, you know, we've got a new paper coming out on, on laughter, they, I might as well say, I've got a new paper coming out on tinsel and fairies, <laughs> and whiskers on kittens, and warm woolen mittens, and it just sounds silly and trite, and it does not even sound like the proper material for science. And I think that might speak to another kind of slightly older Western tradition of, um, in which laughter is often considered to be not really a very sort of civilised, a very grown-up, a very sophisticated behaviour. There were genuinely discussions around the sort of Renaissance period about the extent to which um, Christ had ever laughed, with a very clear view that he wouldn't have done. Um, and that's, that sort of sense of laughter, a little bit infradig, a little bit not sort of... Not that not a higher nobility, a sort of a higher sensibility wouldn't be found doing that. Very low behaviour. Children do that. It's, it's a silly, it's a rude, it's an uncouth behaviour. And I think that kind of feeds into it. So um, and I think there's probably a third reason. And um, that third reason is that laughter is very, very weird. I'm going to play you some laughs now. And I want you to imagine that I had... There was an explorer who'd come back from a rainforest in South America where I'd found some new primate, and I'm playing you these vocalisations. So imagine you're hearing sound for the first time being produced by some hitherto unheard of primate. Wouldn't be too surprised. That kind of sounds like... You can kind of hear a human man laughing there, not too surprising. So I'm turn up a tiny bit. Now things get a bit weirder here. Yo, 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 yo,
Okay. The, the next laughter um, I find quite stressful. I really need this guy to take a breath in. I'm slightly worried about him. So it sounds like this. About now. Now, I said in a, in a public place, I was a bit worried that I thought he might be dead because uh, it didn't sound like he was breathing in enough for me. And uh, he actually got in touch with me and said, don't worry, I am alive. Um, but unlike most people who laugh on an egression of air, so we breathe out and we laugh on that ha, 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 ha. He is also laughing on a breathing in. <gasps> but it sounds the same. So to our ears, it sounds like he's just not breathing in enough. I'm going to come back to that way of laughing. Uh, and then finally, laughter can be a highly involuntary vocalisation, and that means that um, unlike most of what we do when we are making a sound and we're shaping that sound in a way that we want the world to hear us, involuntary vocalisations often we don't really have much control over, and we can end up making sounds, probably all other things being equal, we would not be producing in front of other people. So this lady, this is a human female I'm about to play you, uh, <laughs> worth bearing in mind. And she actually says in French, mon dieu, c'est quoi ça? My God, what is that? And I, I kind of know what she means. Oh, her. <laughs> Good old snort. So. <laughs> Sorry? She's a French lady. Yes, yes, she is French. This is all from um, something called the Skype laughter chain. So if you want to see the videos of people doing it at the same time, it is quite extraordinary. Um, now, of course, a very venerable scientist did write a lot about laughter. So if you go back to, I guess, really the father of a lot of the next 150 years or so of psychological and neuroscientific investigation into basic aspects of emotion processing, was really pretty much set out by Charles Darwin. So he had this book about the emotions of animals and expression of emotions in humans and man, animals and man. And he, um, he was positing that some emotions were, by no means all, but some emotions that humans display, you actually find analogues of in other animals and they play a similar role. So maybe they have a, an older evolutionary history. Um, and he was very interested in these sorts of the develop, you know, using photography to capture these. Um, so I think, I rather like this guy. I think that's sad. Here we've got, he's picking up on the wrinkling of the eyebrow, the sign there. So these are what he thought would be kind of characteristics of, of his face, a sad facial expression that you might find duplicated across different faces. And he was also interested in ways that emotions could be, that have similarities, as I said, across humans and other animals. So here he's got an angry dog. And the idea here is that although we don't have hackles to stand up on our backs, because we don't have hairy backs, that kind of tension around the mouth. There's some similarity there between an angry human and an angry dog. And in fact, if you track the next 150 years in terms of emotion recognition, psychologists like Bert Twistle and then Paul Ekman effectively picked up on a lot of what Paul Ekman had written about in that original book, emotions like fits, happiness, sadness, anger, fear, disgust, and surprise. Those are emotions that to use Paul Ekman's term, they're basic emotions. So Darwin said they've got this older evolutionary history 
And what, what, what Ekman showed is that they do have an old revolutionary history and also they're recognised across all human cultures. So no matter where you go in the world, they, these facial expressions of emotion are recognised by people. Even if they have never seen a white European, they know what those facial expressions mean. So very consistent with the idea that Darwin had that this is something, something that's older than us, something that's part of our evolutionary history. It by no means these emotions capture all of our emotional experiences, but they might be a kind of what evolution have given us as a sort of a, you know, a starter pack of things that are useful. Um, now, I got involved in this kind of thing back in the 1990s when I was working with colleagues who were working with patients who had deficits in recognising things, visual things about faces following brain damage. So they'd initially been working, working with patients who had problems recognising people from their faces, which is something that can happen following damage to the brain. You can tell something's a face but have no sense of familiarity, even if it's you know, your, your, your husband or your wife, someone you know very well. Um, and they also started looking at how those same patients processed facial expressions and they started to find patterns of patients who in fact had selective deficits of particular kinds of facial expressions. So damage to the amygdala, two little nuclei sort of on either side of the brain near the ears, that's associated with deficits from the face of recognising fear and anger. So they wrote their paper off sent it to a journal. The journal came back and said, you don't know what this is. You don't know if this is a problem with faces or a problem with emotions because you, you haven't tested any other modality. You've just tested pictures of faces. So I worked on voices and they said, well, could you make voice versions of these? So I did. I, had, um, I recorded people adopting these different emotional states and making sounds that would go with them. So screams for fear and growls for anger. And indeed, the same patient who struggled to recognise a frightened face or an angry face also couldn't tell that a scream was a frightened sound or that a growl was an angry sound. But she was fine uh, hearing a sound of sounding disgusted or a sobbing sound of sounding uh, sad. So you could pick up this kind of modality, transmodality effect. It didn't matter how the information about the emotional state of somebody else is getting into your brain. It's being processed in a similar way across vision and across hearing, certainly in terms of these patterns of deficits. So one thing that struck me about this, because I carried on fiddling with these sorts of stimuli for the next few years, if these, these are the basic emotions. They're a subset of what Charles Darwin wrote about, and these are the emotions that um, Paul Ekman has found to be recognised across all human cultures based on, on Darwin's work. But the really striking thing is that they're all really negative. There's only one emotion there, happiness which is unambiguously positive. And I thought that's just interesting. In terms of our evolution, it seems strange to me that evolution would load negative emotions as so important. I'm not saying they're not important, but I can count on the fingers of one hand the number of times I have screamed in terror in the last five years. Now, I'm lucky enough to live in a part of the world where I'm not terrified all that often. And I, ha I, once, I think the most recent time I screamed was when I thought a mouse ran over my foot. And I screamed for long enough and loud enough, I had time to think, I don't know why I'm screaming. I'm not scared of mice, you know. Um, <laughs> but it was completely involuntary sound. Now, uh, other emotions, I, you know, it's not like I'm not encountering emotion throughout my day, but these negative emotions, they don't, they're not at the forefront 
of things and this way other ones are so i asked paul ekman about this i said do you think there could be other emotions out there which could have these characteristics they're basic emotions they're older than us in evolutionary terms they're recognized in all human cultures they have distinct expressions that's something else paul ekman said they are resting on different neurological bases that's something else paul ekman reckoned and he said yes and he thought in fact that there were some candidate positive emotions that could be basic emotions but that you would need to not just use static photographs of faces to get to them. So he'd suggested, it turned out, that these, these, these were candidates. So the first one is triumph. Now, that's to, um, to have a sort of a good idea about triumph, you need more than just a face. Here you can see Kelly Holmes, delighted. You can see it from her face, but also her whole body. She has not just won that race, she has broken a world record. And that's an amazing, you know, that, that kind of positive emotion is distinctly different from, say, just generally being happy. Um, he'd also suggested that what he called amusement, and what I called amusement for many years, that could be another candidate's basic expression of emotion. Uh, to spoiler alert, yes, it is. Um, and then he also suggested that these emotions, relief, contentment, and pleasure, they are emotions that could be from um, the voice and the body, in addition to the face basic expressions of emotion. I'm not showing you photographs of those because I tried Googling them and it's just, I mean, it will work it out. But, um, <laughs> so that's when I start. And as soon as you start looking at these, laughter just runs away from you almost immediately. And it runs away from you because it's incredibly robustly recognized. I don't have data to show you, but pretty much any of these sounds, a sound or a scream or a Woo! kind of celebratory sound, I can take, and with a couple of like acoustic manipulations, I can completely strip that sound of meaning. Very easy to do, except for laughter. As long as you have the rhythm, uh, 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 the ha, 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 ha shape to the sound, people hear laughter. It's, and it's incredibly, incredibly robust. And that was interesting. Um, and so I just started to look more and more at laughter. And I think it's worth just taking a second to think about what it is exactly mean when we talk about laughter. Laughter is more like a different way of breathing than it is a different way of speaking. And I'll kind of give you, show you an example of that. And it's more like an animal call than it is like speech. So when I say that, what I mean is human beings make speech sounds in a way, or often many of the things we do with our voices, that is literally unparalleled in nature. No other animal can make the sounds we make because this is what evolution has left, led us to in terms of our, how we make our voices. So this is running our MRI machine as a, a video camera. We're taking s individual slices, scans, while someone's talking in the scanner. So you can see these movements around here. See how the tongue is deforming and shaping and reshaping? Now, no other animal has a tongue like that. Human tongue is like an octopus tentacle. And what you're doing is you're shaping the sound coming up from the voice box. And you're doing so with the lips, the jaw, the soft palate and the tongue. This gives us a sound of incredible complexity. Now, that's the contrast with laughter. And I'm going to now show you the same woman laughing. None of that happens. Her tongue is just sitting at the bottom of the mouth. So when I say it's more like an animal call, this is basically how all other mammals vocalise. They make a sound at the voice box, and then it just kind of comes out through a pipe. Now, seals, and maybe a couple of other animals can do something a bit like us, but this is most other mammal vocalisations are effectively made in this way.
So if we think a bit more about how we use our voices, uh, do you remember I said laughter is more like a different way of breathing than is anything else? Well, breathing is primarily something that happens associated with your rib cage. So the rib cage is a really interesting part of the human body. We don't tend to study it very much in psychology and neuroscience. We tend to confine ourselves to sort of the neck up when we think about bodies. If you're very Freudian, you might also be interested in the general kind of pant area. But or normally, we don't really think too much about it. But actually, it's an extremely important part of the body. So first of all, you're all using your ribcage right now to stay alive. Don't stop. Very important. What you're doing to do this is you use the intercostal muscles and the diaphragm. And you, you, the intercostal muscles are the muscles between the ribs. And when you contract them, it pulls the ribcage out and up, and that creates negative pressure inside the lungs. Air is drawn in, you relax them back down, and the air is pushed out. So you're all doing that right now. It's called metabolic breathing. Very, very important. If I was to put a breath belt on you so that I was measuring just the movement of your ribcage, expanding and contracting, expanding and contracting, I would get this very smooth sinusoidal movement. So that's metabolic breathing, and this is something that you find associated with all terrestrial mammals, or sort of quadrupeds, are breathing in this way. As soon as humans start talking, we start using those same muscles completely differently. We take a breath in, and then we use those same intercostal muscles to produce a very finely controlled flow of air. And what we're actually doing with that finely controlled flow of air is we're making a sound at the voice box. And that's actually involving maintaining its constant subglottal pressure. And if I keep talking without taking another breath, I have to work really, really hard to make a sound and then I run out of air altogether. One of these days, I'm going to either urinate or pass out after doing that. But I think we're... No, we're good. Um, now, you're probably thinking, Sophie, that's just fascinating, but also very weird. Uh, but actually, we can only talk at all because we can do this. It doesn't matter what else we can do up here with our voices. If we couldn't produce that finely controlled flow of air, we wouldn't be speaking in sentences. We wouldn't be speaking with rhythm and melody. We would speak on each breath and it's a completely different thing so actually a lot of what we consider to be the properties of the human voice depend completely on this pattern of breath control and we can only do this kind of breath control because we walk upright when we walked upright it's freed up our hands to be these amazing sort of machines for building and inventing things but also and much less visibly it freed up our rib cages now all other quadrupeds need to use their intercostal muscles to help support their weight if you don't believe me, try talking to somebody when you're doing press-ups or you're doing a plank. I once said this and someone immediately flung themselves to the floor and started doing the plank. Don't, please don't do that. But it, you'll notice it gets very hard to speak and that's why. You have to use those same muscles for a completely different reason. And finally, although it doesn't feel like it, you have as much fine control over the muscles between your ribs as you do over your fingers. That's absolutely incredible precision that you're using for speaking. And in fact, this means that when we go to the fossil record for precursors of humans, we can actually tell which ones probably could speak and which ones could not because you have a an expansion in your spinal column associated with control of the hands and the fingers and you have a second one associated with the control of the rib cage. That's how different it is. So Neanderthals, they did have an expansion all other, Homo ergaster and other ones, they did not have this expansion. So whenever, it, whenever speech came in for humans, the breath control for it came in very late. Now, 
there is a tremendous enemy of talking and breathing, and that's laughing. So this is what laughter looks like. Can you see how different that pattern of movements is in terms of the ribcage movements? So what you've got, instead of this smooth sinusoidal movement for breathing, and this very finely controlled movement for talking, what you have are these enormous and very fast deflections. Each of those big zigzags is just a single contraction of the ribcage, and it's just squeezing air out. Ha, ha, ha. It's an incredibly primitive way of making a sound. Um, we don't have a good understanding of why, but if you have a battle for control of the motor system between breathing and talking and laughing, laughing laughter will win. It stops you breathing, it stops you talking, it's just squeezing air out of you, it is trying to kill you, and it's, it's a relatively dangerous activity. So people with, who are compromised in a cardiovascular sense are put at great risk, or can be, through laughter. Now the other thing, this kind of overwhelming of the motor system by, speak, by laughter, we still don't have a very good understanding of why that is, or how that works. It's much harder to look at than you would imagine. But the, interestingly, the first thing that you can normally notice, if somebody's talking and they start to laugh, particularly if they don't want to laugh, if they're trying not to laugh, is you start to hear the lack of control over breathing that's occurring before the full, those full contractions start. So what this means is you tend to start losing control, first of all, of the pitch of your voice. And I've got an example here of somebody talking on the Radio 4 programme from a few years ago, Charlotte Green, and she hears something that starts to make her laugh. You're going to see the pitch of everybody's voices shown at the bottom of the screen in blue. You'll see how she, as she starts, the laughter starts to get her more and more and more. The pitch of her voice is what varies first. Tim Rock's unpopular replacement has now been dismissed, with the Army's popular Chief of Staff, Jack Twat, taking over. A 40-foot sperm whale which was stranded in the Firth of Forth for more than four days is now thought to be swimming towards open waters again. It freed itself late last night. Marine experts are hoping to establish this morning whether the whale is still back at sea. Good luck to the whale. Ted Hartley has an investigation... Yeah. If, like me, you work on voices, there's just so much in that clip. I love the way the guy coming down the line has got to say a silly name. Twat is a bit of a rude word. Certainly where I come from in Lancashire, it's an exceptionally rude word. And the guy just goes for it. Popular chief of staff, Jack. Twat. Uh, nothing to see here. And then back in the studio, just before Charlotte Green starts to read the news headlines, somebody leans in, and you have to listen really carefully to hear this, but someone leans in and just goes... <laughs> and they're doing that for one reason and one reason only they are trying to make her laugh and it takes a couple of beats and then she starts to go and the first thing that you see is she's starting to completely lose control over the pitch of her voice and then towards the end of the afternoon she's going the whale is finally back at sea the pitch of her voice shoots right up and then by the very, very end, she's making squeaking sounds after she stopped talking because now she is completely laughing. So that's someone who does not want to laugh on the radio. That's the power of laughter overwhelming your motor system. So we got interested in it. We started looking, looking more at this. And one of the things we wondered was, well, if laughter really is a basic expression of emotion, it should be something that's recognised in all human cultures. That's, that's a given. You can't just test laughter 
in the UK and have people recognise laughter and sort of assume from that it's a basic expression of emotion. But also, ideally, to do cross-cultural work, you need to work with a community of people who are not contaminated by your culture. So if they recognise emotional vocalisations produced by people back in London, and if they make emotional vocalisations that are recognised in London, so you're looking in both directions, then you might have an idea of something that really is perhaps a basic expression of emotion, to use Darwin's term, sorry, to use Ekman's terminology. So remember, everything that was done before was done with faces. So everything Paul Ekman had done, we've been testing these basic expressions of emotion with the face. And there are good reasons why people hadn't used voices. A, no one had thought of it. B, it's really hard to do things with voices. Photogra you can use photographs of faces, those work well, but actually in the Namibian desert, it's hard. This, we were doing this in the late 90s, early noughties. It was actually hard to present the sounds. You couldn't charge up computers and things like that. So it took several trips. Um, and what we, my PhD student, Dita Sota, was also doing, she was getting the Himba, not only the, sorry, so she's working with the Himba, who are a community of people who live in northern Namibia. If you go to Namibia, you can go to Himba settlements, which are part of the sort of normal tourist tra trail around Namibia. These were not the Himba she was working with. She was working with Himba that you would have to drive for days to find. And she was working with an interpreter who could translate because very few people speak the same language as the Himba. And then she was also not only looking at how the Himba recognised emotional vocalisations from people back in London, but she was also getting them to produce emotional vocalisations. So I'm going to play you an example of one of those now. If has happened to me in the past, anybody from the Himba community is here today. Stum, OK. Don't start going, I know. Right. So what emotion do you think this guy is expressing? No prizes. No prizes for spotting that he laughed at the end there. Okay, we'll come back to that. Anybody guess what that first emotion was? Does it sound... Any guesses? Excited. It's very excited. There's a lot of energy in there, isn't there? Does it sound positive or negative? Very positive. It's actually triumph. Now, that's really interesting because he understands completely when you describe a situation about which you would feel triumphant. Some emotions are so culture-specific that even if they're explained to you, you can't quite get them if they are not, you are not part of that culture. That's not what we're dealing with here. So our English participants and our Himba participants both understand what it means to, to be triumphant, to be celebrating something. However, what you're seeing here is the expression is not recognisable outside of the culture. So if you play somebody going, woohoo, to the Himba, they don't hear somebody celebrating. I think we might have got that from the Simpsons anyway. I don't know. If I had a time machine, I would like to travel back to like the 1970s because I suspect they might have got a different sort of cheering sound. Anyhow, but it doesn't sound celebratory to the Himba. And similarly, back in the UK, people don't hear I, 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 as sounding like a celebratory sound. So what you've got here is an emotion that is not a culture-specific emotion, but the expression is not recognised outside of a culture. So it's not a universal expression of emotion. In contrast, at the end, he started laughing. And if you listen really carefully, he starts laughing because he's surrounded by other Himba friends who are laughing at him. <laughs> and in the end, it gets him. He's like, oh, do this stupid dance then, fine. Um, and then everyone's laughing. So it's that, that is extremely recognisable. And 
that's exactly what we found when we looked at the data in more detail. So bearing in mind, Paul Ackman's work on the face had shown anger, disgust, fear, sadness and surprise were cross-culturally recognised facial expressions of emotion. We replicate that with the voices. So if you are in the middle of the Namibian desert and you go, Ugh, somebody else from the Himba community will know what that means. The only positive emotion which is cross-culturally recognised is laughter. Now, if you've got time, there's something funny happening with relief and I'm happy to come back to that. But laughter by a country mile is being recognised cross-culturally and there's this strong evidence that this is a, cross, a, a cross-culturally recognised emotion that likely is a basic expression of emotion. Just keeping an eye on the time. Um, okay. Um, now, just a little side note here. I think that one of the problems, one of the reasons why Paul Ekman didn't have laughter in his original set of emotions he was looking at was actually because he was using static photographs of facial expressions of emotion. Static photographs of people laughing often don't look like laughter. People could be crying. People could be in pain. So I think that as soon as you have dynamic information, you've got the sound that she's always moving or you've got video, uh, video uh, images of somebody so you haven't just got a static visual signal, you've got something that's changing and capturing the, the movement of the body's dynamics, you start to be able to see laughter more clearly. So this is an outtake from Curb Your Enthusiasm. So the static photographs didn't get really view the sense of those two men laughing, but as soon as they're moving, it's quite clear what's happening. <laughs> so going back to the, um, the sort of the basic emotional aspects of laughter. Uh, now, we should have expected laughter to be a very good candidate for an emotion that is cross-culturally recognised. And that's because we aren't the only animal that laughs. Again, you read a bit more about it, and this, bit, this is not at all uncommon to hear people claim that only humans laugh. Uh, Nietzsche thought that only man laughed because only man sort of understood the desperate sadness of life such that, you know, humour was needed um, as a, something humans could do. So we've got the origins of laughter, and interestingly, laughter, wherever you find it, is initially strongly associated with tickling. Now, that works for humans, and it works for... Chimpanzees, I love the adult chimpanzee here, oh, you're going to get tickled. Oh. And it also works for rats. So um, interestingly, you cannot tickle yourself. And laughter is first seen when infants are tickled normally by a parent, and that's true for chimps and rats and human babies. And you can't tickle yourself, it requires someone else to be there. So from the outset, laughter is actually primarily a social behaviour. It's something that happens in interactions. And there is, there is one thing that will make human babies laugh that does not work on other apes or other mammals. Can you guess what that is? Peekaboo. Now, significantly, humans, actually, there's ex dogs might be an exception to this, but all other mammals, apart from humans, don't understand what eye gaze means. So if your cat wants something, it will come and look at you. And if you go to the gorilla enclosure at London Zoo and you stare at one of the gorillas, they, the, the keepers will likely come and ask you to move because the gorillas take that as a threat. Only humans use eye gaze to go, OK, I'm looking at you and actually that means something important. I'm talking just to you and I'm talking just to you about her. 
So that kind of use for attention and guiding attention with eye gaze is really, really important to humans. Dogs are sensitive to it. Corvids also care about, they know things mean something different. If someone's looking at me, I'm being observed, that means something. But I think that might be right from the outset with human babies who care a lot about eyes and they care about where those eyes are looking. I think peekaboo might work because it's like a touch that doesn't require a touch. It's contact that needs no physical contact. And significantly, you can't tickle yourself. And also peekaboo doesn't work if it's just on a screen. It needs to be a person playing peekaboo. So you have to have that contact, that social contact, even if it's not physical contact. So we've got this. The other question is, um, people always say, well, how can you tell the, an ape is laughing? Um, I've got a video here of the, the late comedian Robin Williams meeting, sadly, also late gorilla called Coco, who could sign. And he tickles her. She asks him to tickle her, really humorously as well. She's like, tickle me. Uh, <laughs> hashtag relatable. And... Um, <laughs> The, and, he, and it's hard. It's hard to tickle gorillas. You've really got to get in there. And it takes them a while. So look at her behaviour when he actually manages to tickle her. The other thing to notice with Coco, and this is, this is a, a talk for another time, she's absolutely obsessed with human nipples. I mean, she, like, to the extent to which most of the things she signed was the sign for nipples. And she is always trying to find out more about them. So you'll probably see these two things going on here. There we go. Tickle. 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 She's already having a bit of a... What have we got going on here? <laughs> no, he's trying. It's hard. And now, that starts to look more familiar. Right. <laughs> Let's not waste each other's time here. <laughs> and, um, so it's, it's actually very well established that you can sort of see this laughter behaviour in other great apes. It's, it's slightly more complicated in an animal like the rat. Um, rats are much smaller than us and they make sounds we can't normally hear. And in fact, the researcher Yang Panksep, who uh, first talks about rat laughter, what he was doing was he was actually investigating sounds made by rats when they're distressed. And because uh, rats are very small, we can't normally hear the sounds they make. He was recording the sounds they made all the time and then reducing them down in pitch so we could hear them. And when he did that, they noticed that the rats make a completely different sound when they're playing with each other than when they're upset. And rats are highly social little vermin and they play a lot. Um, so they wondered, well, is this, is this laughter behavior? So what they started doing, they put gloves on, they started tickling the rats and the rats make the same sound when they're tickled. Now, of course, that could still technically be the rat going, stop it, don't like it, in both of those examples. So what they do is they get the rat used to being tickled, and then they take their hand away. And if you do that, the rat will jump about making the squeaking sound, um, trying to get you to tickle it. And if the same scientist tickles the same rat every day, they make that sound when you come into the lab in the morning, and no one's normally that pleased to see scientists in the morning, so it's quite nice. So, 
And this is interesting. I'm not going to talk about this in too much detail, but Pankskep's work is really interesting because there are experiments you can do with rats you cannot do with other animals. So, for example, he found that the more you tickle a rat when it's a baby, the more that that rat will laugh when it's tickled as an adult. And rats that are tickled a lot are more optimistic. <laughs> Within the constraints of still being rats, they're optimistic rats. So uh, Panksepp has this rather lovely description of laughter. He says, at its heart, laughter is an invitation to play. And I'll just go into play a little bit and then we'll take a break. So play is very interesting. Play is absolutely <laughs> critical to mammals. Mammals have got huge brains and we have an extended period of being juveniles when we train those brains up. And one of those things that we do to train up our big brains is play. So all mammals play when they're juveniles. And of course, play can be very different depending on the animal. So dogs, when they're puppies, play differently from kittens. Kittens play differently from chimps. Chimps play differently from rats. The only thing that characterises it is it's a purposeless activity. You're not making something we're all going to live in or seeking food that we'll all eat. Even if those things happen by accident along the way, it's not why you're doing it. It is purposeless and it is enjoyable. And of course, the animals are learning a lot about their world and what they're doing here. They are learning their social role. And, you know, you can see dogs play fighting or kittens play hunting, things that will be important to those animals when they're older. And in fact, some animals, some mammals play their whole lives. Humans, otters, dogs. It's an important part of their entire life. And in fact, laugh, um, play is so important, but also so ambiguous. Remember, so you think about dog play fighting, what's the difference between a play fight and a real fight? Sometimes they could be exactly the same. It's important you can tell the difference. So what mammals do is they have signs they use to indicate that they're playing. So one of them is what's called play face. So you get this very loose, open, unthreatening mouth. I like a very open smile. Dogs have another sign that they use to indicate they're playing. So dogs, in addition to play face, have this thing called the play bow that the dog's doing on the top left there. And that means everything after this is a game. <laughs> I might growl, but I am not mad at you because we are playing a game. And that is okay. You ready? We're off playing a game. And you find very, very similar phenomena in other apes and humans. It's very, very difficult to get a photograph of an adult human in playface. I just want you to notice how very similar my brother looks to that chimpanzee. Okay, you got that. <laughs> and when there's a sound associated with playface, it's laughter. And that is the heart of its kind of invitation to play, and it shows that you're playing. So I was walking across a recreation ground in, in, in the village I grew up in, actually. I'd gone back for a, a, another reason, and I was walking across the rack. And I saw two boys running for the same cricket ball and one was much bigger than the other. They turned out to be brothers. And the bigger one was just wailing on the smaller one. And they were both trying to get to the cricket ball and the bigger one was just stopping the smaller one from getting it. And the only thing that made the situation not aggressive was they were both screaming with laughter. So it could have just been aggression. We both want the ball. I'm bigger than you. I'm going to get it. What makes this fun, what shows that I don't mean it, well, this is all part of the game, is I am going to get to it first, but I'm laughing and you're laughing. And we both know what that means. This, this is a game. That invitation to play, and I'm going to come back to that, is an absolutely central part 
of probably the role for laughter for all mammals. So a lot of this work, if you're interested, is work by Robert Provine from the US who's written some good books on this. But he's been ploughing a very lonely furrow, explaining for the past few years that we really should take laughter a lot more seriously. So one of the things he's found is, I mean, if you, you've probably encountered this in your life. We like laughter. Adult humans like laughter. We pay a lot of attention to laughter. We will take ourselves to situations where people will likely laugh along with us at some other thing, and uh, we will pay good money for that. You know, it's, it's a thing that we engage with a lot. But almost everything we think we know about laughter is wrong. So, um, and this was true of me. So for many years, I called laughter amusement. That's what I called that class of stimuli. And then I read Robert Provine, and I realised, of course, he's right. That's not what it is. So, do you remember I said with tickling, the first emergence of laughter is effectively in a social context because someone else has to tickle you. Well, it never really loses that. That's there through play, and it's there into adulthood. So what Robert Provine's found is, for example, if you ask people what makes them laugh, they'll talk about jokes and comedy and humour. And we do laugh at jokes and comedy and humour. But we laugh much, much more in social settings where there is no jokes or comedy or humour. So you're 30 times more likely to laugh if there is somebody else with you than if you're on your own. It remains a social behaviour. And what this means in practice is that most laughter happens in conversations because conversations are the sort of substrate for the majority of social interactions between humans. And within those conversations, we very rarely laugh at jokes. We will laugh at jokes and comedy, but more often we laugh at statements like, I might miss my bus, or I will have another cup of coffee. Because what we're actually doing with laughter is still largely a social behaviour. So people will laugh just because there's other people there. People will laugh to show that they know those people. You will laugh to show that you're part of the same group. You'll laugh to show that you like people. The more you like someone, the more that you will laugh around them. You laugh to show that you, you agree with what they've said. You laugh to show that you understand what they've said. That's why you laugh if someone says, oh, I might miss my bus. So it's actually doing a lot of rather complex communication in interactions. And it happens a lot. So with the proviso that there are very, very few studies of laughter, what studies there are that show um, a relationship between how much people think they laugh and how much people actually laugh, all show that we underestimate how frequently we laugh. Everybody's laughing more than they think they are. In fact, we haven't published this yet, but a student and I put together a questionnaire where we were sort of finding out what drives individual differences between people and how they think about their laughter. And actually, the main difference between people, the biggest factor that people spread out on when you ask people about laughter is how much people think they laugh. Some people think they laugh a lot, Put your hand up if you think you laugh a lot. Some people think they don't laugh very much. Put your hand up if you don't think you laugh very much. And it's actually, it's, it's a reasonably big spread. Now, what we actually find is, regardless of how you score on that questionnaire, has nothing to do with how much you laugh. Everybody still laughs more than they think they do. So it's definitely, I'm not saying you don't think you laugh a lot. Or you, don't, you, you almost certainly do have that strong, it's it actually quite a strong correlation with other personality traits. But... It actually still, it's telling you more about how you think about yourself and your laughter than it does anything about your actual laughter. Um, it's all still mediated socially. So the more you know other people, the more you like other people, the more likely you are to laugh around them. 
And of course, you can laugh solely because of behavioural contagion. You can catch a laugh from somebody even if you have no idea why they're laughing. And that's much more likely to happen with someone you know than someone you don't know. And actually, that laughter is not alone in this. So behaviourally contagious phenomena are things like yawning, laughing, blinking. Most of the blinks you do, you're actually doing because of a blink you've caught from other people. I normally get caught in a kind of blink-off with someone in the audience. I'm doing it with you now, sorry. <laughs> you look at... Now, babies don't show any contagious behaviours. These are things you learn to do. Watch a baby. A baby blinks only when it needs to blink. So these contagious behaviours, one of the things they seem to do, are they basically just affirm that you know someone. So you are kind of echoing their behaviour back and you only do it if you know them. I haven't got it in here, but I have a photograph of my son yawning that I use sometimes to illustrate here is yawning. And somebody pointed out to me, every single time I show that photograph, I yawn. Now, no one else yawns. They don't know him. I don't say it's my son. But it's, uh, you know, it's, that kind of, it's an incredibly basic thing. We're not the only animals that show this. Dogs show contagious yawning. Chimpanzees show contagious yawning. Amazingly, dogs will only catch a yawn from other dogs they know or other humans they know. Chimpanzees will only catch a yawn from other chimps they know, but they will catch a yawn from any human. There you go. So, this takes us on to our first brain study. So this was a study we did years and years and years ago, just trying to look at the brain systems recruited when you're listening to these wide range of emotional vocalisations. And what we noticed was, when you hear laughter, you get very strong activation in those regions shown in green, now, those are in addition to sort of the auditory processing of laughter. These are what's called, what's called orofacial mirror regions. These regions shown in green are brain areas that are recruited both when you hear laughter and when you move your face into a smile. So it's recruited during perception and production, and it's much, much more activated for laughter than it is if you hear Ugh. Now, a disgusted sound like Ugh is highly emotionally contagious. I guarantee you, and I won't do it, but if I stand here going, ugh, ugh, for a while, I'll feel sick, you'll likely feel sick. That's emotion. That's the job of emotion, is to transmit that kind of information. Now, laughter is different because laughter is behaviourally contagious. When you hear laughter, you don't necessarily just feel better, you also tend to join in, particularly if you know the person who's laughing. That's that behavioural contagion at work. So we don't normally, if, you hear, if I stood here going, ugh, for a while, you might start feeling sick. You're very unlikely to start going, ugh, along with me. <laughs> Although a few more years of Brexit, um, maybe we'll all be just, <laughs> you know, watch that one's what I'm saying. Now, I have, a, I, have a, I have a very nice example of um, contagious laughter, just to play you. This is, again, from two men doing, that's two men, and they are doing a cricket commentary. It's from about nearly 30 years ago. And one of them makes a terrible joke. And what I want you to notice is initially what happens to the voice of the man who doesn't make the joke before he starts laughing. Okay. So this is a picture of the voice down here, and you can see that's when the, the joke comes. And he knew exactly what was going to happen. He tried to step over the stumps and just flicked a bail with his, with his right he hand. He must have tried to do the splits over it, and unfortunately uh, the inner part of his thigh must have just removed the bail. He just, just didn't quite get his leg over. Terrible. Yeah, he, he did very well indeed. So he's very smiling now. Minutes Not laughing yet, smiling. Calls. Picture his voice and, has gone uh, up. Then we had Lewis playing extremely well for his 47 not out. Agus, do stop it. Uh, <laughs> 
So the man who made the joke is laughing. He was joined by the freighters who um, was in for 40 minutes, a useful little part ship there. Uh, they put on 35 in 40 minutes and then he was caught by Dujard Walsh. Now at that point, Brian Johnson, who's talking, takes a breath in. Now when he starts to talk, the laughter's got him. And you'll start to see the pitch of his voice shoot right no. up. You even get little whistling sounds. Um, Lawrence, always entertaining. Going for 35. 35 minutes in a fall over the week. Jonathan Agnew tries to speak. Yes, Lawrence. <laughs> Completely fails. So that um, now at the time they were new, they were going to get into a lot of trouble from the BBC. The BBC does not like newsreaders or sports broadcasters, what they call breaking. What they mean by that is showing emotion. So they knew they were going to get into trouble. Like Charlotte Green earlier, they're desperately trying not to laugh, but the laughter's got them. There's two other things that are really interesting from this. Well, first of all, like the effect it has on their voices. These are two men with adult male voices, which are low in pitch. And the pitch just soars when they start laughing. They start generating this incredibly high-pitched sound because of just all the air being forced out of them. The other thing that's very noticeable is almost immediately, well, you've got this very beautiful kind of trajectory of the laugh. You can see quite, quite late to start, and then his voice soars off. As he gets control back over his voice, you see the pitch of his voice come down, and he says, I've stopped laughing now. He's actually getting control back. The other thing that's going on here is it's a terrible joke and very quickly they are not laughing because the joke is funny. The joke isn't funny. Almost immediately they are only laughing because they're both there and they're both laughing. It's just pure contagion. Just back and forth, back and forth. It's why he keeps saying, oh, Agas, do stop it. Because if you stop, I'll be able to stop. So it's a nice demonstration of um, behavioural contagion. But remember, behavioural contagion is much, much more likely with someone you, you know, someone you like. So I think the other thing, because now the BBC will play this at the drop of a hat, and I think something else you can hear going on here is we can kind of get what this means. We sort of know, when you listen to that, you do know if those two men hated each other, they wouldn't have been laughing like that. You're actually hearing friendship. You're hearing it working. And actually, that's a beautiful thing. You know, and it's one of the reasons why uh, the BBC actually play this now as frequently as they possibly can do. Um, so with adult humans and laughter, what you've got is real complexity about what's going on. We can laugh just because other people are laughing. We can laugh to try and make and maintain social bonds. You can probably all think of examples, possibly even that happened today. We've had a very brief interaction with somebody and one or both of you have used laughter just to make that go slightly more smoothly. You can use laughter to show in a conversation that we agree, we recognise illusions, we understand, we're both on the same page. But in fact, what Robert Povine's found is at any one point in time, in a conversation, the person who laughs most is the person who's talking. So actually, we're actively using laughter to try and get other people to show that they do agree with us, they do understand, they do recognise some illusion. 
And we will also laugh to reframe things as play. Remember, talking about laughter as a sign that we're playing. Now, people will do this in quite complex ways, and we can maybe come back to this in questions, but I've got some examples of this towards the end. But reframing something as play, certainly for adults, can mean this isn't serious, this is fine, this is funny, this is enjoyable. And people will use that to try and, not always, but sort of reframe difficult situations. And often, if it works, you don't even notice it working. Um, but it was also noticeable uh, back in the summer of 2016 in the US, there was a very prominent guy who worked at Fox News called Roger Isles, who was just a famous sort of sexual predator at work. And he had a terrible reputation. He'd been moved around, even under the Nixon administration, sort of to try and get rid of him because he was such a pest at work. And suddenly, in the summer of 2016, women started talking about him and they started going on the record and talking about how he behaved. And the thing that was really striking, because he had quite a formal, quite a similar sort of method that he would use with women he worked with for suggesting things, they were telling very similar stories because he always did something quite similar. But the number of women who said when he had made these suggestions or these you know, ideas to them, they'd reacted by laughing. And what they weren't laughing at because it was funny, they were laughing to give him an out and to say, this is funny and I know that you are being hilarious because obviously you don't mean that. And the interesting thing is it can work very well as that. You can go, yes, I was just, yeah, that is hilarious. Who'd have thought that would be going on? But also it completely could get, get him off the hook because he can say they're laughing, they're fine. It's very, very complex. Laughter can be highly ambiguous when we start to use it socially and we use it socially all the time. So what often happens with laughter is it's as much to do with how other people interpret our laughter as it is anything we intend to do with laughter. And if you've ever had, laughed at something and it was completely misunderstood by somebody else, you'll kind of know what I'm talking about. So the other thing to notice is I've talked about two different kinds of laughter this afternoon. I've played you examples of people laughing absolutely helplessly and who are desperately trying to stop laughing because they're broadcasting to the nation on Radio 4. But I've also talked about conversational laughter. And conversational laughter tends to start and stop very quickly. It tends to be highly communicative, like I was saying. But also, it, it's quite different from spontaneous laughter. It seems to be a lot more... Um, it, it sounds more communicative, for want of a better phrase. So, for example, when people are having a conversation, they laugh at the end of sentences... And they laugh together at the end of sentences. And they laugh together at the end of sentences, even if they're having a sign language conversation, where in theory you could laugh all the way through, but you don't. You laugh at the end of the sentence. So in fact, people are laughing in conversation in an incredibly coordinated way. Now that sounds like something that would be very hard to do with that sort of completely spontaneous, helpless laughter, which if you, ever, if you think that's the last time you were laughing like that, you can't actually stop. You can't start it and stop it that quickly. And often, actually, those two examples I've shown you of spontaneous laughter on the radio, both of them had quite a long run-in. There was quite a long gap between somebody, the thing that sets the laughter off and the laughter actually starting. So conversational laughter has got this very tight timing and spontaneous laughter hasn't. So are they really different kinds of things? Now, there is some evidence for this from the face. So which of these two photographs of Paul Ekman looks nicer, the one on the left or the one on the right? The one on the right. Now, you will not be too surprised to learn that actually the picture on the left is a composite. So the mouth is the same in both photographs. 
It's very hard to see that because we see faces holistically. We don't see them as a collection of parts. So we've got the same mouths and in fact the eyes are what's different. When people smile spontaneously, it tends to involve the muscles around the eyes. Where when people smile to command, often only involves the mouth. God bless him, David Cameron was a bit of a devil for that. Big <laughs> smile going on here, quite often not much happening at the eyes. And now, there actually is data showing this. If you ask, if you, in studies, if you provoke people to like smile spontaneously, it looks more like the smile on the right. Whereas if you get people to smile to command, they're deliberately trying to control the smile. It looks more like the one on the left. And here, that's, that's, that's a colder smile. So um, is there anything like that with... Oh, I should just say, again, nothing new under the sun. Charles Darwin wrote about this, okay? This is very well established. So what we decided to do is to see if there's anything like this in laughter. So what we did was we got people into the lab and we did whatever it took to get them absolutely howling with laughter. We wanted them laughing spontaneously. And then we got those same people to sort of fake a laugh for us. Um, is to imagine that your friend's told a joke and you're laughing because you like your friend. You're, it's a social, communicative laughter, but it's something you're choosing to do at some level. And this was difficult because people do not laugh in the lab very much. Lots of you... Oh, sorry. Lots of YouTube videos. And it's time for the annual world's ugliest dog competition. Oh. I'm sorry, dogs. <laughs> but really, whatever, whatever people oh, said made them laugh, we would show them. That's... Oh, Lord. Sorry So whatever people said made them laugh, we would show them. Um, and then we, we would watch it all together and we would get nice examples of laughter. So we asked, we've got spontaneous laughter from people and then we've asked them to laugh to command. So do you think this is a spontaneous laugh or do you think this is a laugh to command? Command. I'm going to play it to you. Listen to it first. <laughs> okay, I'm going to start, play that one again. Command. Okay, how about this one? That's actually me. So how high, high pitched my laugh is. When you're laughing spontaneously, you know, it tends to be longer, it tends to be higher in pitch because you start generating these forces you could not produce voluntarily. So I would love to be able to sing that high. No way I could get my voice up that high under voluntary control. When I laugh that high, I'd easily produce that sound. And it, so people are good at telling the difference, but we learn to tell the difference. So this work isn't published, but we collected a huge number of people at the Science Museum in London where we were asking people to tell if laughs were spontaneous or controlled and communicative laughs. And what you find, we've got children from the age of three and adults up to 80 here. Children do not know what you're talking about. You play them a laugh of any, either of those laughs I just played you and they hear laughter. They don't hear a difference between them. As you get older, you get better. And if you look at the curve, the line in blue is for the spontaneous laughs. And what you find is by the time you are getting to your sort of through adolescence. Okay, so that's the improvement at recognising real laughs. So by the time you're in your, at, at the end of adolescence, by the time your brain's fully matured around the age of 20, people are getting to peak performance with that. But when you look at those social, those communicative laughs, people do not peak in performance 
until their late 30s, early 40s. Now that, that looks more like a social skill. If you plot things like empathy or theory of mind, what you find is over age, it increases like that. It increases fast, but it continues to increase over your entire early adult life. Because the, where you learn about these things is in interactions with other people. The same is true for laughter. So social use of laughter is an incredibly important social skill. And there is nowhere else to learn it other than in interactions with other people. Um, this is just a, a, something else we've got coming out this month with the same laughs. So what we did was we wanted to see what would happen, like the implicit effects of these laughs. So I've, I've said, and this is true, most laughter doesn't happen <laughs> at jokes, but we do laugh at jokes. So what we did is we presented people with absolutely terrible jokes, read by a professional comedian, things like, what's the best day for cooking? Friday! And we got people to rate how funny the jokes were, and we deliberately chose real stinkers. Um, and then we, are, we, we, so we got a collection baseline for these laughs, just how funny people think they are. And then we edited laughter onto the end of the jokes and it was either a spontaneous laugh or a posed laugh. And then we got people to rate them again. And everybody's only rating each joke once. And what you find is that any laughter, that's these, these, the, the, the line in, this is all the individual jokes, the line in red it's just how much those jokes vary in humour when you just hear the joke. And as soon as you add in laughter, the joke is considered to be funnier. The green line is the line for the spontaneous laughter. So the spontaneous laughter makes the joke even funnier. So there's an effect of hearing the laughter. Even though you've just been told to rate the joke, you can't ignore the laughter. And the more spontaneous the laughter, the more funny that seems to make the joke. Now, we don't know what the mechanism is here, it could be that you are just happier when you hear the spontaneous laughter and that makes you judge the joke as better. Or it probably is maybe something more social, like you can't ignore it. Laughter is never neutral. And if you hear laughter paired with a joke, it's, you can't sort of dissociate the joke from the laughter. The laughter becomes funnier because it sounds like somebody else has approved of it. And very interestingly, that was exactly the same for people with autism and for neurotypical controls. So this seems to be a very basic kind of use of laughter and humour. We also popped people into the brain scanner and we played them laughter. They've got posed laughter and spontaneous laughter and loads of other sounds because we did not want them working out they were in a study on laughter. And what it doesn't matter what you do, people pay attention to or tell the difference and you show different responses to the two kinds of laughter. So they don't know it's a study on laughter and they don't know there's different kinds of laughs in there. And what you find is lots more activation in regions in blue. Those are auditory parts of the brain for the spontaneous laughter, where you get all those funny squeaks and whistles and high pitches. And I suspect this is because you hear sounds you never hear in any other context when you hear somebody laughing really helplessly. In contrast, you get lots more activation shown in pink for the posed laughter, that communicative laughter. Now, I was worried that we'd see just like an overwhelming effect of the real laughter, because the posed laughter, ha, 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 it just sounds a lot less interesting. But actually, if anything, we get more activation to that. But now it's not in auditory parts of the brain. It's in these medial prefrontal parts of the brain associated with tasks like theory of mind tasks, mentalizing tasks, thinking 
about what other people are thinking. And this goes back to this point, laughter is never neutral. When you hear somebody laughing helplessly, that's fairly unambiguous. That person is absolutely lost in, the, in laughter. If you hear somebody laughing and they are putting that laugh on, it's communicative in some way. So you hear someone going, ha, 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 ha. There's a reason why that person's laughing. Maybe they're laughing to cover up being really angry. Maybe they're laughing to cover up being very upset. Maybe they're laughing to cover up being embarrassed. Maybe they're laughing to cover up being in pain. Maybe they're laughing to try and get someone to like them. Maybe they're laughing to show they like someone else. The different possible uses of laughter. It's, and that's just the start. I haven't even got on to. Maybe they're trying to laugh at someone. Maybe they're trying to get someone else to notice they're laughing at someone. The, the complexity of the use of laughter, and remember, most laughter you encounter is this more communicative laughter, is why I think you get even more activation in these parts of the brain normally seen associated with thinking about what other people are thinking. And that's just listening to the laughter. They haven't been told to do anything with it. And I think that's a really important part of laughter processing. You're always trying to work out why. What's going on here? Why is that person <coughs> laughing? Interestingly, do you remember I showed you that priming effect? When you hear laughter, you can actually see the brains getting ready to join in. Well, we thought you might get more of that for the spontaneous laughter because the spontaneous laughter is just so much more contagious. People rate it as more contagious. However, that's not what we found. What we find is you get this priming response, but it's there for all the laughter. Where it varies is across the participants. We got people out the scanner and then we gave them a test where they had to discriminate real laughter from posed laughter. And what you find is the score on that test correlated with how much they'd recruited this brain priming response earlier. So it's not just contagion. When you're getting ready to join in with a laugh, any laugh, you actually understand what that laughter means better. And this is, as I say, almost certainly something you're learning to do. So what could be affecting why people do differently on this test? Well, part of it might be your experience. So this is a group of teenage boys listening to those same laughs. And here we've actually got three groups of boys. There's 93 boys in here. One third of those boys are boys who are typically developing teenagers. Another third of those boys are boys who are typically developing teenagers. No, well, they're, they're, they're normal teenagers. They don't have a psychiatric diagnosis, but they have conduct problems, so they are poorly behaved. And the third group of boys have conduct problems, but they also score highly on what's called a test of social, um, what's the best phrase, but the, 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 the caring about what other people think. So what you find that those boys who have badly behaved and do not care if other people are hurt, they, it's high in callous and unemotional traits, that's the phrase. So they are poorly behaved and they just don't mind if other people are, are hurt by the consequence of their actions. Now those boys, are at risk of psychopathy. Now, what do they look like if we look at them individually, well, in the groups? What you find is there isn't a difference, particularly on authenticity. So those boys can tell a real from a posed laugh. They're not struggling with that. What they don't show is contagion. They don't get ready to join in when they hear laughter. They don't find laughter contagious. And you actually see that happening in their brains. So they're showing less of that priming response that we showed you before. Now, what we don't know from this is why. You're seeing somebody at a snapshot in the middle of their teens. It could be that these boys have never had the opportunity to learn about laughter. 
We know this is something you learn to do. We know from the rats that the more you're tickled as a baby, the more you'll laugh as an adult, and whatever that extrapolate to humans, what would be the impact on somebody of them not having those interactions? The other way around this can go, though, is what if there was something different about those boys from the outset that meant they did not learn to laugh? There was some barrier there to them achieving this. Is it a mix of both? And, of course, it's more likely to be a, a cycle going around in both directions. So this does not tell us the direction of causation. We're not saying psychopathy is a problem of laughter perception. But laughter is a really important social emotion. If you think about the consequences of going about the world and not joining in when other people laugh, that's actually fairly devastating. And if you think about how laughter can be used, all those social interactions where you have a really brief contact with somebody and you both laughed and then you moved on, if you don't have that tool at your disposal, what does that mean? More seriously, what happens if you don't understand why other people are laughing? If you have an interaction with someone and they laugh and you think that they're laughing at you? Now, there's a condition called galatophobia, which is always found associated with profound behavioural disturbances and psychosis, where people don't understand laughter and when they hear laughter, they abreact to it negatively then they think the laughter is directing at them and they are the sort of people walking down the street hear someone laughing think they're being laughed at and punch someone in the face so it's actually potentially a really important behavior to look at across these different patterns of psychological differences and then to finish with what does it mean in terms of kind of normal life so we talked about laughter as this kind of very important way of making maintaining social bonds signalling affection you know you laugh with people you like you laugh with people you love you don't laugh randomly around the day you don't give laughter to just anybody so we're very sensitive to that and we're very sensitive to the implications of laughter but it may be even more important than that so there's research coming out of the US from a lab a chap called Robert Levinson and he's been doing a, a longitudinal study of married couples from the local San Francisco communities. There's nothing, you know, this is just like a, a lot of people who signed up to a study in the 1980s. And every few years, he gets them into the lab. He wires them up to a polygraph so you can see bodily changes associated with stress together. So the husband and wife is in there together. And then he asks them together a really difficult question. It's designed to be stressful. So he'll say to one member of the couple, say to the wife, tell me something your husband does that irritates you right in front of him. So just run that one through your head for a second. In front of a loved one, here's something you do that irritates you. And what you see from the polygraph is both members of the couple get stressed by that. It's designed to be stressful, and it is. However, the couples who deal with that with what he calls positive affect, but he means laughter, immediately get less stressed. The invitation to play works. And actually, you see the stress go down physiologically and also, over time, those are the couples that are happier and they're the couples who stay together for longer. And it's not because the laughter is a bit of magic dust that makes everything better. What it's actually doing is it seems to be about how you regulate the emotions together. And one of the ways you know this is if only one member of the couple laughs, it doesn't work. Both members have to laugh for it to work. So one person's going, <laughs> it's a massive problem, isn't it? I should probably stop. And the first person's going, I just wish you would not do it. <laughs> no one laughs. No one feels better. And if anything, everyone just stays slightly more stressed. So I think laughter is actually extremely important. What you have here is a behaviour we can use to regulate emotions in a positive direction 
particularly in close emotional relationships. I don't think this is going to be limited to romantic relationships. I think this might be what we mean by friendship, is people we can kind of negotiate a better mood with. We can control our mood together by laughing together. So um, Robert Levinson has lots of inspiring videos of elderly couples making each other laugh, and I haven't got one of those. I've got a YouTube clip gone wrong. So this is a film being made on YouTube by some young men trying to promote their heavy metal band from the former East Germany. And for some reason, they edit, I had to edit out a huge amount of swearing in English. That's really unhelpful of them. But what I want you to notice is how the emo something goes wrong and I want you to notice how the emotional tone changes when things do go wrong. I'm just going to turn the sound down a little bit because it's slightly louder. Okay, look. He's expecting to get wet. He's wearing swimming trunks. He's got a towel. There's water with ice on it. He looks a bit apprehensive. Also gets a lot of machismo, a lot of bicep kissing and swearing. Yeah. And he's ready to go. And his friends are already laughing. They're absolutely howling. He's not laughing yet. Now he looks at them and now it starts to work. How weak he is, he can't use his arms properly. <laughs> so, one of the really nice things about working with laughter is people quite often send me videos and say, I oh, will look at this, and you know, this laughter here or spontaneous laughter there. And this one, people have sent me a few times and said, Oh, it's Schadenfreude, you know, it's very funny. We laugh because things go wrong and he gets a bit hurt and that's schadenfreude but it's a little bit more complex than that because the original mood is quite apprehensive everyone's quite serious as soon as what they expect to happen i.e he goes through the ice and do hilarity results as soon as that doesn't happen but also there isn't blood and bone everywhere his friends start laughing it takes him a couple of beats and then that invitation to play works and instead of being angry look do something about it can't you see i'm hurt instead of being embarrassed it's fine it works this is funny and if you don't believe me imagine what that would look like if he was running around with a visibly broken leg laughing while his friends were going henrik you've got to come here though we've got to take you to the hospital or even worse imagine his friends laughing like that while he lay on the on the on the ice with a broken leg going please help me Please help me, I'm hurting and I'm cold. It would be unwatchable. One of the things you're watching there is the laughter working. The invitation to play works and he reframes everything. He starts laughing as hard as his friends and then it's fine, we're back to where we were. And it's an incredibly useful and common kind of the use of laughter, but it's one you have to learn to do. Again, if he was just like, cross, stop laughing at me, get me out of here, it wouldn't, wouldn't work again. You're, you're, the laughter is working because they all realise what they're trying to do with it. They interpret each other's intentions correctly and it works. So um, you can probably all think of examples of this happening around you. Something very similar happened at my father's funeral. We weren't jumping around 
on the ice in our underpants. I'm not actually Scottish. But um, the, I had a relative behaving very badly. My mother was in a very bad state. And I ended up finding myself telling a story about a sitcom that had been on television when I was a child. It was a scene from Porridge. And even at the time, I thought, this is really weird. Why am I doing this? But actually, now I can see it didn't matter. It, just, it could have been anything. I just needed a reason for us both to laugh. And I was just thinking of the quickest thing I could get to, and then we both laughed, okay, we can do this. So it's actually an incredibly common use of laughter and sort of regulating that emotion at the same time as reaffirming your relationship. So to go back to Darwin, he thought that laughter was an expression of joy. And I think that's probably as close as we can get. It's an invitation to play and the intention of play is to be joyful. There's no harm will be for you. And I think all we really need to do to add to Darwin's ideas is to say that joy has a social meaning. It's not happening outside of social interactions. It is completely embedded in those social interactions. And it is definitely worth taking seriously. Thank you very much. I think laughter and crying are very, very interesting because they, they actually are two emotional expressions that appear really, really soon after we're born. I mean, crying's there very quickly and laughter comes along very soon afterwards. And they do seem to be used in an extremely communicative way. Babies have different cries depending on exactly what's wrong or what they want. And by the time toddlers are sort of one year, year a bit old, long before they're talking, they will do things to make their parents laugh and they will use their parents' laughter to work out if situations are dangerous or not. So before you have language, crying and laughing seem to scaffold a lot of your communicative intent. And of course, as we grow up in our culture, you tend to primarily encounter only, cr only laughing in this social way, but actually children still use communities crying a lot, kind of, you know, fake crying, we're pretending to cry, but actually in other cultures, socially appropriate crying can often look like that. In Japan, crying is an extremely acceptable way of acknowledging that, you know, embarrassment and shame, and, um, and to our eyes, it can often look incredibly fake, because it's not, it's, it's no more fake than our social laughter is fake and that it's being used entirely appropriately in that community. So it can continue having this trajectory. And the other thing that's really interesting is both laughter and crying involve tears. And only humans make emotional tears. So put your hand up if you cry when you produce tears when you're sad. Most people. Put your hand up if you produce tears when you're laughing. Put your hand up if you produce tears when you're angry. A few people, yeah. Now, you don't produce tears when you're frightened or when you're disgusted. You know, so there is something else going on there. There's something about tears, and, but they may also extend to anger. And as you say, actually, in terms of the sound that you make, they're very, very similar, but they have... Um, they, they can't even be confusable. And I always thought... That's interesting because they feel so different. I mean, I, I feel terrible when I've been crying with sadness. I feel awful. I would go to great lengths to avoid crying, of tremendous lengths. But there's a guy in the U in Netherlands who's doing a lot of work on crying, and he finds most people feel better when they've been crying. 
Put your hand up if you feel better when you've been crying. It's, it's 80% of people. Put your hand up if you feel worse when you've been crying. Yes, we're in the minority. I thought it was everyone. So actually, they may even be similar in that, in that way. So people, I've certainly talked to people who will engineer situations where they can have a cry because they know they'll feel better. Now, for me, that would be laughter. You know, so they may even be similar in aspects of this kind of emotion regulation. They're very, very interesting. And we need to know a lot more about that because the other thing that, the other thing that I would say is they can both overwhelm you. If you get completely overwhelmed by crying or overwhelmed by laughing, you can't really do anything else. And they tend to have this very extended period. Over, you know, whereas if you're disgusted, you're, you don't carry on going, you know, <laughs> Brexit notwithstanding. But that kind of, um, it doesn't, it, so there's something about the way it can overwhelm your motor system. And clinically, you can find patients who have problems of producing uncontrollable laughter and uncontrollable crying, one or both, and you don't find that for other emotions. You don't find uncontrollable screaming with fear and uncontrollable sounds. So they may even have a different meaning in the way they're organised in terms of the motor control. Thanks. Possibly. I mean, you, you certainly, um, it certainly shows that you're laughing. You are, your intention is positive. And you've got, if you watch comedians, they were, I mean, the old kind of uh, stand-up comedy is a relatively new, new, new performance style. It has only really been around since just before the Second World War. And around those times, people would use kind of signifiers. I've got to the end of the joke, and they're like a rim shot. And now you'll still see people saying, and that's why I never travel on the top deck of the bus. You know, they do things to signal to the audience, now you can laugh, even if it's just stopping talking. And people will often use, like Stuart Lee, Louis C.K., little sort of grins and smiles. So it's definitely, I think one of the interesting things about jokes is how people cue the audience in, now is the time to laugh. And it's not just by the words. It seems to be prosody and all this kind of non-verbal stuff is important there. And then my follow-up question is, with stand-up comedians, why are we led to believe that they are the most depressed people? <sighs> well, it seems to be a cultural trope because they're not. So um, there have been a couple of studies on this, and what you find is that some stand-up comedians do get depression, but that's because humans get depression. As a group of people, if anything, they're slightly less they score slightly lower on this, what's called the neuroticism scale, which is a personality test that kind of lumps all possible mental health problems onto one scale. But they are actually slightly less neurotic in this very general way than the general population. They do score differently on a couple of other measures. They tend to show very consistently a, more ten a tendency to be more open-minded. And they also can show a tendency to be less needing of social approval. Now, the first one, they're artists, they're writers, and that would, that would fit with that kind of profile. The second one about needing social approval, every comedian I've asked about this says the same thing, which is, I get it on stage. I walk out on stage and I get all the laughter I need. I don't need it when I get off. So I don't really care that much what other people think because I don't need laughter from them. So they are slightly different, but they are not. They're, they're the, they are only depressed in that all of us could be depressed, sadly. As you said, uh, very good, uh, very inspiring talk. Um, as you said, uh, laughter has got a multifaceted function, from social to expressing your joy. Uh, <laughs> <laughs>
Yeah, it's alright, just, just, no, 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 it's the kneel. Yeah. <laughs> Mm. Uh, uh, when we see some people uh, yawning. Uh, and uh, maybe as a second question as well, we, we, when, when we think about humor, uh, we laugh the loudest or more spontaneously, the more situations we frame for us that the negative emotion is uh, re reduced in, in our interpretation of reality. It's, uh, if you look, that I, I'm always very careful to take a bit of a body swerve around humor because I think you can address laughter scientifically it's not going to tell you everything about laughter but you can get closer humor i think is harder because if you look at the scientific theories of humor they always are dreadful i'm using the term quite precisely because they're always looking for one reason why things are funny and this is a fault of science it's what we tend to look for there are all these theories of humor and the problem with all of them is you can immediately think of a joke that doesn't fit any of them so um what it means in practice i suspect is that humour may be more like um, any other kind of aesthetic appreciation we have for stuff in the world. And what I mean by this is you cannot find over time and over place one thing, one piece of humour that is funny for everybody. There is always someone going, well, that's not funny. My brother died that way or something. And it's, um, it is really interesting... As, so we've probably been laughing before there were humans, laughter's older than us. As soon as humans appear on the planet and they start writing things down, you start finding jokes. As so, so as soon as there's writing, you will find humour. So we have probably been using humour as soon as you get humans. But um, if you look at what the contents of those, those jokes are, they're just not funny to us now. So the oldest joke in existence is from Mesopotamia. And it's a bit of ancient papyrus, which was found, I think, in mud. And someone has written on it in hieroglyphics, how do you get a pharaoh to go fishing, dress young women up in fishing nets? So you can sort of see the shape of a joke, but it's not very funny, because we don't care that much about pharaohs, and it sounds a bit obvious. And there's a whole Roman book with the laughter lover, which is just full of Roman jokes. And man, those are crazy. So again, they look like jokes. So quite often you'll see that there's a whole group of people who are clearly considered by the Romans to be hilarious, like um, you know, certain racial groups or ethnicities were considered to be hilarious. But also, they thought crucifixion was funny. There are so many crucifixion jokes in there, it's genuinely shocking. <laughs> and so again, you can see that it has the shape of a joke, but it doesn't... It's got none of the stuff that would make us feel that something's funny. And actually, that changes all the time. So even in our culture, if you remember, like, a few years ago, Gangnam Style was funny, and we found jokes associated with that. Imagine if you... I was like, oh, pun Gangnam Style, now you'd all be like, oh, this is really embarrassing. Oh, ha, ha, make it stop. And so there's this... And that looks, that's cultural. That's like, like everything else about Hume, we don't all like the same music. We don't all like the same clothes or the same paintings or the same dance. We don't all have the same sense of humour because it is more of an aesthetic appreciation. So I think that, I suspect the scientists, uh, I'm, you're never going to stop scientists doing anything. I, I, I am less convinced by the work on humour in terms of trying to come up with one rule that tells us why things are funny and I'm more impressed by accounts that say that it is always there. 
all cultures have things they consider to be funny all cultures have examples of humor and as long as we go back and wherever we look it seems to be a constant for humans and as much as like music is a constant for humans so it's probably really important to us but it's probably more important for you to find something funny that you share some cultural references with the person making the joke that you perceive their intention as being playful You've probably all been in a situation where someone said something offensive and then they went, well, I'm only trying to be funny. They will, Mate, it's not funny if no one's laughing. It's not enough to say it was meant to be funny. So it's, it, is, it is highly complex. Thank you. I, I was intrigued by your comments about dogs inviting others to play, going down on its front paws. Yes. And I noticed that when I saw my dog doing that, I did exactly the same thing. Mm. I went down on my board. And it responded exactly the same way as if I was inviting it to play. Yeah. Like cross species. Yeah. And then I tried it with other dogs, and they responded in exactly the same way that I was inviting them to play. Yeah. So my curiosity would be that if I see an angry dog, <laughs> well, I can't lie. I wouldn't necessarily say that would be a good idea because just like with a human, you can't assume it will work. If they, it, the dog would have to perceive your intention as being acceptable because we are we don't laugh randomly. We're quite careful about who and how and when and things. People don't laugh if they feel like they're being observed or they're being isolated and they, you know, or they feel certain sorts of danger, people will stop laughing. So it, you, you're not guaranteed that laugh just because there are, you, you're doing the right things. And I suspect the same is true with dogs. So it would be very interesting. But um, it would also probably work depend on how well you knew the dog because I think that's definitely true with humans. But it's certainly interesting how they responded in the same way as if I was a dog. It's amazing. It's, it's such an interesting, um, such an interesting behaviour. Because if you think it's, it's actually highly human, a kind of performative, I'm going to do this, and that changes the meaning of everything that comes afterwards. That's incredibly sophisticated. It's amazing. And, it, and, and the fact that it's, you don't have to agree it with the dog beforehand, it, it's extraordinary. <laughs> Yeah. And they respond to me as if I've been serious. You know, yeah. Like humor is normally dark, pretty stuff. You know, so they get they look at me like God. You know. And <clears throat> but then they'll notice after a bit because you know I can't help them starting to smile. And and then they realise that I told a joke. Yeah. And what's interesting, they don't get the joke. They start laughing. Yeah. Often. And I even had one friend, and I'm sure she doesn't get any of my humor. I'm just totally confidently goes by her. And she said to me the other day, you know. She notices one other, and she said, "You're so funny. I love your humour." And I thought, "You don't get it." <laughs> so even though they don't find it funny at all, they still, when they see that, when they realise that told a joke, I meant to. Yeah. They laugh. Yeah. It's, uh, it's well, uh, it's because it remains a social behaviour. So they're laughing because they like you. If your friends didn't like you. They wouldn't be laughing, you know what I mean? I, I, I mean, I, if you've ever been around, I have a relative. I always thought she laughs really inappropriately. She's like, ha 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 ha, and I realised. Because I started working with laughter, it's not her, it's me. I don't join in because I don't like her. And I'm like, we don't have, we don't have that kind of relationship. You're not getting that. So, 
I associate that with her doing something wrong, but it's me. I'm the one withholding it. And actually, if I liked her, I would be joining in. And in fact, we attribute laughter to people. Your friends are saying, you are really funny. What they mean is, I like you. I'm laughing when I'm around you. To show. And as soon as you show even the slightest behaviour that means you are trying to make me laugh, I will laugh because I like you. It's, it's incredibly powerful. Enjoy it. Don't, you know, your friends are doing a nice thing. Your fr- as I say, don't discount this. It's important. Your friends like you. You can't always assume that. 